Welcome to the second season of The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Ben Rausch, a fourth-year medical student at Western Michigan University, Homer Stryker, MD School of Medicine. I'm Jack Sandu, and I'm doing a research year with the Interventional Radiology Department at Jackson Memorial Hospital and the University of Miami. We work with a great team of students, residents, and attendings using the power of podcasts to explore topics in interventional radiology. As the host of today's episode, we hope you find it both educational and enjoyable. We're very excited to introduce this next episode where we sit down with Dr. Andrew Gunn and discuss academic IR and research in IR. Dr. Gunn completed his medical school at the University of South Dakota, during which time he was accepted to and attended the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and NIH Research Scholars Program. He then went on to complete his diagnostic radiology training at Massachusetts General Hospital, followed by a fellowship in vascular and interventional radiology at Johns Hopkins. He's currently an interventional radiologist at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and also serves as the assistant program director for the diagnostic radiology residency. So Ben, I thought that this was a really interesting episode that kind of looked at um, the state of research in interventional radiology uh, along with uh, academic IR and kind of had some gems for possible trainees interested in an academic career and things that they should get involved with or do to kind of make themselves better candidates for that type of career. I agree. I think that this was sort of a different tone than some of our other episodes. It brings something to the table that we hadn't really done before, which is that whole academic uh, research uh, focus in IR. And I think that his perspective is something that can really help a lot of uh, trainees, whether they're residents uh, or, or students, to, to guide themselves into a, an academic role in the future, or even just to be more involved in research in general. Yeah, I definitely. And his uh, kind of his like personal anecdotes that he gives um, about his own career and how he got um, interested in interventional radiology and then kind of also into the research aspect uh, went after he went and went to the NIH. Um, it kind of kind of like brings up a lot of like things that a lot of people who are interested in academics kind of have those same interests, whether it be with education or research. Um, I thought it was really interesting when you started talking about like the mentor mentee relationship yeah, and uh, working with someone who you can really get along with. Um, and even if like the research that that, that mentor is performing, isn't something that you're necessarily like the most interested in, you, you might want to do research maybe in like something more than like interventional oncology, but your mentor is doing something with uh, palliative IR or something kind of just the importance of forming like a very good relationship with someone that you get along well with that can go a long way uh, down the road as you kind of move on or move forward with your career. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It it builds on actually some of the things that Dr. Charles Ray said in in our previous episode about the mentor-mentee relationship and sort of gives further guidance of how to build those relationships as you go through your career, especially if you're moving into more of an academic or research role. In his perspectives on where we need to go as a specialty to further our research and further develop it, were really beneficial. Yeah, definitely. And you know, he brought up he brought up areas where interventional radiology did research really well, like liver cancer and Y ninety, and also uh, uterine fibroid embolization as like as things that should be emulated in other areas and can be 
in terms of how we go on and do research in the future. Yeah, it kind of goes and builds on the the evolution of this field from like our interview with Dr. Katzen, which was, you know, a bunch of people that were pioneers just trying to figure out how to help these patients and quickly tell people somewhere else how to do it, you know, back in yeah. the day, to now yeah. let's further prove that uh, the, the procedures that IR does can be beneficial and, and equal to or better than, than things that are being done for patients in other fields. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting, you know, when he was saying that really interventional radiology is poised, like, very well in terms of, like, the healthcare landscape, where, like, the goal is to try to limit costs while providing the same quality of care. And um, the research that could go into, like, a lot of interventional procedures, like, even if they show that, like, the overall outcomes are the same, between the surgical and interventional uh, treatments, the overall cost will probably be probably be less um, in the interventional realm, and the complications are usually less when compared to surgery. And like how doing that type of research and outcomes can lead to like the those procedures uh, getting having more merit and being um, performed more, even if the outcomes are like very similar and might not be any any significant difference. Yeah, that's a really good perspective that he that he gave, especially with all the implementation of big data, looking at all these huge data sets from Medicare and other places as well uh, to, to further uh, the research in the field. So one thing I'm, I'm curious for you, Jag, after doing that interview, does it make you want to go into academic IR more or, or what are you what are you thinking after hearing that interview? So for me, um, I'd always like had an interest in being involved with academics in some way. Um, I really liked like the education kind of aspect to it and working, um, working with kind of like students and um, residents and like kind of being like always learning kind of in that aspect. And I think for me, that was what drew me to academics the most. Um, I also think there's a huge role, especially for us, uh, coming in to kind of help fill that gap in uh, in terms of like research, and that's some and that's a way that we can kind of help move the field forward. At least our generation would be to kind of perform like more of those uh, longitudinal outcomes types of studies that could uh, help further the evidence for the field. That's a great point, Jack. For me, the education uh, component of academics is something I've always been interested in. And I like that he brings up the different kinds of research that can be done. For me, the idea of doing more of like public health sort of research in, in IR is, is something I haven't really thought about. And it's a different type of research than I've done previously. And I think, uh, I don't know, it, it brings up some, some things that make me think, hey, maybe, maybe I will end up in academics um, and not private practice. But I guess we'll, we'll both see uh, down the road. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's uh, still a long way for both of us before we get to that point. So a lot can change. Absolutely. And now for our interview with Dr. Gunn. Um, Hey, Dr. Gunn. Thanks for being with us today. We'd like to start by asking if you could share some of your story and how you decided to become an interventional radiologist. Uh, Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, You know, for me, it was, I really decided I wanted to do uh, interventional radiology, um, you know, kind of midway through medical school, I had thought that I wanted to do, uh, you know, diagnostic radiology. And then, but that was really before I did any of my clinical clerkships. And then I uh, did my surgery rotation and I really loved surgery and had no idea 
uh, about interventional radiology. And then just kind of uh, as part of another radiology rotation in my fourth year, I spent probably half a day, you know, with an interventional radiologist who, I mean, all we really did was, you know, paracentesis and I think a pick and, you know, something else. And just, you know, the whole nature of doing something procedurally based that wasn't necessarily traditional surgery um, that, you know, really impacted patients' lives was, was really appealing to me. And so from that point, um, I did a lot of reading and, I, you know, I heard about, you know, minimally invasive interventions for stroke and, read about, you know, delivering chemotherapy directly to tumors and putting needles through people's skin to burn off tumors in the in the liver and the kidney. I thought this is just, you know, fantastic. And so kind of from that point on, um, I knew that I wanted to do interventional radiology. So when I applied for, you know, diagnostic radiology residency, I kind of knew going in that I was uh, going to go for an interventional radiology fellowship. So that was really my path uh, going into this. Oh, that's amazing. It's, it's interesting to sort of get an idea of, of what brings people into the field. And I like that for you, it wasn't necessarily you saw this crazy complex IR procedure. It was these basics of being able to treat people using imaging. And then y- your interest sort of developed from there. For sure. And I think that we hear that on the interview trail when medical students come in and, and interview for residency position. It's, it's this very typical story of people who are interested in surgery, but they're really kind of grasped by the minimally invasive nature of the things that we do in interventional radiology. And even as a fourth year medical student who didn't know a lot about the specialty, it's really easy to wrap your mind around the fact that this feels like the future, right? Like doing things under imaging guidance, x-ray guidance, CT guidance, MR guidance, like that just feels like where things are going. And so um, to be able to kind of latch on to those things, like early on, it's very, it's very digestible. It's digestible even to, you know, lay people that you talk about family and friends and and say, hey, you know, I do things under imaging guidance. So just little nicks in your skin. And that's how we we guide everything by by looking at images and people, people grasp that. And so um, but yeah, just the, the, the certain fact that it just kind of feels where things are going to be less invasive, less costly, less complications is, is a great aspect of interventional radiology. And I think it's an it's easy concept for a lot of people to understand. As you, uh, you know, went through your training and started your career, did you always know that you wanted to go into academics or how did that come about? Yeah, I think so. You know, it's interesting because my medical school, uh, I'm from South Dakota originally, and so that's where I did medical school. My medical school is actually kind of like a hybrid. I mean, it's essentially all private practice doctors that kind of donate their time to teach medical students. And so I wasn't really exposed, you know, early on to, you know, um, uh, you know, traditional academic medicine per se. Um, But uh, I did spend some time... um, uh, in between my second and third year, uh, doing a research fellowship out at the National Institutes of Health. And that really opened my eyes to uh, the research aspect of what medicine can be. And then um, also, even really through training, I just, I, you know, I'd, I really liked the fact of what you get in an academic hospital, um, and apart from the research aspect of it, but I liked the fact that it's you know, it's essentially the same referring doctors. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of a closed institution where, you know, everyone's kind of working for the same goal. Um, I like the fact that, uh, you know, uh, interacting, you know, in multidisciplinary conferences and not that those Mm -hmm. don't exist in other places, but, you know, I like the fact that, you know, those interactions and multidisciplinary conferences, I like the interactions between, you know, the medical students and the residents and, and, and the faculty. And I also feel like those kinds of interactions, like knowing, what to teach your residents and your medical students kind of keeps you 
abreast of what's going on in the field as well. And so all of those aspects about academics are really appealing to me. Um, and then also the other thing is that, you know, at a, you know, a large tertiary quaternary care center like ours, I mean, no one's going anywhere from here. Um, and I really like that as far as like the cases. Hmm. I mean, you know, we're not shipping them off to any other hospital. Um, and I'm not saying that that doesn't also happen out in, in private practice because there's definitely, you know, a variety. I mean, that line between academics and private practice is getting more and more blurred all the time. But, you know, those are all those things that are really appealing to me about being in academics from the, you know, the diversity of the cases, the big cases that come in, the challenging cases that come in, the fact that you, you know, have time to, you know, do some research and the fact that you can interact with residents and fellows and, and medical students are all really appealing to me. So for me, I'd never really, you know, uh, entertained much going out into interviewing for private practice jobs. I kind of knew that I wanted a university-based job when I was kind of going through training. So that's kind of what always my, 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 my focus has been. Interesting. Okay. Uh, you, you, I really like your points on uh, what in academics drew you to that career path, but were there were there specific people, specific mentors throughout your training that really drove you towards academics? I mean, oh, all of them, you know, I mean, because when yeah. you train in academics, you know, once you go on to residency and fellowship, I mean, most of them, you know, most of these training programs are set up at, at academic institutions. And so really you are immersed in that, you know, the whole time as a resident, as a fellow, you're, you're around people. But um, I mean, you know, working with, uh, working with Pete Choiki at the NIH, you know, I mean, that was very instrumental. Um, into opening my mind into, you know, research and what research could be and what research in radiology and what research in interventional radiology could look like. You know, mm. that was very instrumental. People like, you know, uh, Sanjeeva Kalva at NGH and, and Greg Walker and uh, Robbie Oaklu. I mean, these were, you know, interventional radiologists that were also doing, you know, uh, clinical and preclinical research. And so, you know, um, and tagging along with them and getting hooked into their projects were a huge boost because not only does it help your CV, but also helps you kind of learn how to think about problems and, and how to research problems. And so all of those people have just been, you know, very instrumental in, in how I think about things and, and uh, kind of what my ultimate career path was, uh, uh, has taken. Yeah, it's a great story. Um, and for something I think our listeners might like want to be interested in learning, um, for those that could be interested in pursuing an academic job, a lot of them might not really have much of an idea of like things that they should do and get involved with uh, during their training and residency that could help make them stronger candidates uh, for an academic job, especially because those tend to be a lot more competitive to get right out of fellowship. Um, boy, that's, uh, you know, I think it's an easy answer, but it's also a hard answer because the easy answer part of it is, I think the best thing you can do is really get plugged in with someone that you jive with interpersonally, right? And so, yeah. for example, you may you may come in thinking, I'm really interested, I, and I don't know, I'm just making this up, but you may come in and think that you're really interested in uterine fibroid embolization. But, you know, the person that does uterine fibroid embolization at your institution just isn't someone who, you know, for whatever reason, your personalities don't match or whatever they're doing, you know. And so... For me, I would the, the suggestion that I would make is that especially early on, I mean, definitely in the medical student uh, phase and certainly in the early resident in the early residency, is instead of worrying necessarily about the project or the type of research somebody that's doing, I would worry about your fit with that mentor, okay. um, because I think you're going to be much more productive if if you think about things the same way, if you attack problems the same way. 
Um, if you, uh, you know, just generally get along, you're going to have a much more productive relationship, even though what they're researching may not be the one thing that you're passionate about. I think early on, just you getting involved with someone that can be a mentor, that can be, you know, someone who can write a letter for you, someone that can make a phone call for you, someone that, you know, when you're having a tough time with a case that you can pick up the phone and text them or give them a call. That is so much more important, I think, early on than than narrowing something down to a specific interest. Because even early on in your career, you know, there's going to be multiple things that you're kind of pursuing. And so focusing down to a, to a, to a certain interest and only focusing on the interest is, is a medical student is, is difficult to do. So I would, I would, my general advice would be find someone that you get along with, find a good mentor, tag onto their projects. And then as you kind of grow and see where your interests go, it doesn't necessarily have to be that same interest. You can grow and move on and find somebody else. But, you know, early on to kind of get that experience and kind of see what research is like and to kind of have someone who will be a mentor for you and have your back during the application process and those kinds of things, I think is the most important thing to start on. But, you know, finding a mentor is not always the easiest thing to do, which is the difficult part of it. Yeah, yeah. I, like, I like that. We, we recently interviewed Dr. Charles Ray um, out in Chicago and uh, he, he said a lot of the same things about mentorship. Um, just generally, but hearing that specific to research was uh, really enlightening. And, you know, what ends up happening, especially in interventional radiology, is that there's, there's so many, it's a small community and there's only, you know, there's so many different ways to skin a cat as far as the procedure goes and those things. And so <laughs> yeah. surrounding yourself with different mentors from different places is really good because you learn, you know, you take the good from each one of those people and you kind of form who you are, you know, from that relationship. And so, um, you know, and, and I think the nice thing about having such a small community in interventional radiology is you actually, in my experience, have a lot of people who want to share with medical students and residents who are coming behind them. And mm. sometimes we're not very good at, you know, uh, you know, finding the match for right people. But at the same time, there's a lot of interventional radiologists who would love to kind of share their wisdom and their expertise for people coming along behind them to act as mentors because they are very vested in the specialty and want to see it grow and develop into, into you know, something bigger in the future. So uh, that's, you know, that's really the key there for medical students is that there are really a lot of willing and available mentors in the field of interventional radiology if they're kind of willing to, to go find them. I, that's interesting. I, there's a follow-up question I'd want to ask about that because you, your point about, you know, there's a lot of uh, this newer generation and sharing cases, it, it reminds me of how common social media is in the, in the IR world um, with just with that spirit of collaboration and mentorship. And you yourself, Dr. Gunn, are someone that um, is very involved on Twitter. So what role have you seen that play in your mentor-mentee relationships over the last you know, five years? Well, I think, you know, I think what it's done is increase the number of available people that you can bounce ideas off of. I mean, at least for me personally, you know, because for example, you know, maybe you don't do a certain procedure, you know, 50 times a year and a certain case kind of comes through. And so, now, instead of just having, you know, these people that I could bounce ideas off of potentially just for my residency or for my fellowship, now there's all these other people, either, you know, usually through direct message, but there's all these other people that you're like, you know, um, you know, there was a case a couple of weeks ago, kind of a difficult portal hypertension case. And, you know, it was really easy because of Twitter to direct message Sahar Sabri from Georgetown, who's oh, yeah. you know, a world expert in portal hypertension and say, hey, can you give me a call? Here's my phone. Here's my phone number. 
And, you know, we get on the phone and we kind of talk through the case and it was really helpful. So in that sense, it really, and then the other thing that you see is that you look and see, it's like, oh, that's really interesting how they did that case. I haven't used that wire and catheter combination before. Or, and that's also really helpful because sometimes there's things that you might be a little hesitant to do just because you haven't seen it done before. But then when you see other people are doing that around the country, it kind of like lowers that bar. You're like, okay, I can try it this way because it's, you know, I've seen other people do it this way. And so um, it, it certainly is a way to kind of help um, I wouldn't necessarily call them mentor-mentee relationships. I mean, they could certainly develop into that, but it certainly increases the number of available people that you can see how they're doing cases and you can talk to them about complex cases. And I think that is, you know, that's really invaluable because, you know, we're only as good as really our experience. And so for us to kind of grow and to learn to be better, we always kind of need to keep borrowing from other people's experience and then building upon that. Yeah, definitely. And that's like something I've noticed about like the social media kind of world as well is that like there's really no one like way that everyone does like all their cases and there's a lot of like creativity and kind of innovation with uh, the way people kind of solve similar problems and it's always cool to see like their their ways and like other people's ways of doing things yeah i mean i remember so i I mean i went to a different place from my from my fellowship than where i did my residency and i remember actually on the first day of my fellowship i was about to do a cholecystostomy tube placement and in residency we just put the drain straight in we just trocarded in under ultrasound and I remember my fellowship attending asked me, he's like, oh, have you done these before? I said, yeah, I've done plenty of these. And so, you know, kind of let me to it. And and I was about to just stick the drain straight in like I'd always done. And he opens the door and he screams, he's like, what are you doing? You know, and, and uh, it was just, that was kind of like my first, you know, my first introduction to the fact mm-hmm. that like, oh, people are going to do things a lot differently here. And, and that's been great. You know, there's always kind of bumps in the road when you go to a new institution or new training program. But I think you kind of have to take take that with the good and see like, hey, there's different ways of doing things and people are still getting safe and effective treatments. And so it just increases the toolbox you have to treat your future patients by opening your mind up to what other people are doing. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. All right. With that, we'd love to launch into the discussion uh, more about like research and interventional radiology. Sure. Um, so interventional radiology has always had a strong history of innovation in both vascular and non-vascular interventions over the past uh, half century. And from like the advent of transluminal angioplasty to the development of embolotherapy and stents and targeted cancer therapies and more. But even with this strong history of innovation, it seems like the level of evidence of research for interventional radiology treatments and procedures, um, they don't seem to stack up well with the other medical and surgical literature. So we wanted to ask like why you feel like there haven't been stronger, stronger trials in the past. And what do you think were the major obstacles over like the past 20 years to in like designing higher level studies and more outcome studies? Uh, Well, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, part of it in interventional radiology is that we kind of keep pushing boundaries. Right. Mm. And so I feel like uh, there is some effort that is spent in, which is totally necessary. There's some effort that's spent in device development that's uh, pushing boundaries for new procedures or different ways to do procedures. And so, you know, you only hope people only have so much time, right? So, you know, if, you know, if you're doing that, then you're not necessarily doing the other, which is kind of the comparative effectiveness and the randomized control trials you need to kind of establish standards of care. So I think that's one aspect of it is that, you know, they're so busy, you know, a lot of times interventional radiologists are so busy kind of pushing the envelope with either devices or new procedures that there isn't so much of the focus necessarily on the back end of establishing those procedures in comparison to 
medicine, medical or surgical or oncologic therapies, right? Um, but even in the IR literature, I mean, there's things that we've done well, right? I mean, yeah. and I think that those things that, uh, those are things that we should look at, see why we did those well and kind of replicate that for other procedures. I mean, certainly uh, with chemoembolization for liver cancer therapies, I mean, there's randomized controlled trials that establish that as, as uh, better than systemic therapy. Um, and, and we see what we've done with that because we had randomized controlled trials. And now people are starting to kind of replicate those things with Y90 and, and percutaneous ablation. Uh, similarly, I would say with um, uterine fibroid embolization, you know, we've had multiple randomized controlled trials that show uterine fibroid embolization is an excellent option, you know, for women with, with uh, symptomatic uterine fibroids. So those are two really good examples of uh, areas where interventional radiology has randomized controlled trials and we've been able to kind of get nice footholds um, into the landscape. Some of the other issues uh, that come across with interventional radiology, like especially with, you know, something I do quite a bit with like renal ablation is that there's just, you know, there's just not enough power sometimes in order to uh, show that, say, percutaneous ablation leads to better outcomes, say, comparing microwave ablation to cryoablation. I mean, just getting the number of patients, because each is like 95% successful, right? So get to, to, yeah. to get the power you need to show differences between those two technologies, you're probably never going to see that, right? So, mm. so that's why I think, um, and, and really the SIR has, is shifting some focus to this, which I think is great, is looking into these big data, population-based, comparative effectiveness, uh, effectiveness-based research. And I think that that's going to be really important because as healthcare moves more to a value-based, trying to contain costs, think interventional radiology is going to be well-positioned because to demonstrate that our outcomes are similar to what you would see, say, with a traditional surgical option, but our complications are less, the cost is less, and we can get patients out of the hospital faster. I think those are areas that are ripe for development. And then, you know, using this big data research that's out there and then kind of using VSIR to, to write these standards documents and say, hey, listen, you know, here's the evidence that's out there that's supporting this and, 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 and go from there. Because sometimes it's not always randomized controlled trials. I mean, sometimes it's going to be using comparative effectiveness research with kind of bigger data and comparing those things. And, and that's acceptable as well. Um, but I think those are some of the limitations, you know, is, is patient numbers, um, you know, not always having the, the the time to do. And it's difficult, you know, randomized control trials are hard to do, but we've done it in certain areas in immature radiology, which I think shows us a path forward. That's awesome. So for our trainees that might not be familiar with the process and what goes into designing a <clears throat> perspective or randomized trial, can you go over what the planning is and the timeline of just from when you have the idea for the study? to the grant writing process and hopefully getting the funding to begin enrolling? Uh, so if they hear nothing else, it's slow. I think that's probably <laughs> the thing that everybody, you know, should understand. I mean, you know, that's why it's tough when, even for retrospective things, it's tough. People come in for four weeks for an elective or something like that and they want to get involved in something. And unless you have something tuned up and ready to go, mm-hmm. I mean, even let's just even start with the retrospectives. Like you have an idea and then the first thing that you really need to do is, I mean, you got to go into the literature and you got to spend a couple, you know, got to spend some time yeah. looking at what's been done before because, you know, certainly you can do the same thing that's been done 50 times and probably find a home for it. But, you know, my thought about those kinds of things is what are you really doing to move the needle? And yeah, sometimes yeah. when you, you know, sometimes when you look at it, and sometimes that, 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 that's okay, right? You know, maybe there's only 40 patients that have a certain procedure and you've got, 
35 patients. Well, now you're adding another 35 patients to the literature, and that, that's great. There, there is role for that. But certainly when you go into and you're looking at the literature, what I would suggest is, you know, find where it's missing something, where it's lacking. You know, maybe there's a bunch of data for microwave ablation, but no one's really reported anything on cryoablation or, you know, some of those kinds of things. And find an angle that, you know, your data can help answer a question that we don't know the answer to. So that's kind of, and that's just even the, the, the retrospective part of it. And then you have to write an IRB and then you have to submit the IRB and usually it's a month or two before the IRB gets back and then there's data collection they're writing. So even for like a retrospective thing and you're really thinking, you know, somewhere between three and six months, you know, by the time that idea to having the data out to probably sending something out to publication. And for prospective stuff, it's, it's even going to be longer because you have an idea and again, it involves a literature search. And then, you know, you kind of got to decide, is this going to require funding or is this not going to require funding? Um, you know, things that are, you know, kind of quote unquote standard of care may not require funding. Things that, you know, Medicare or patient insurers are going to pay for and we're just going to, you know, look at mm-hmm. a different type of bead or a different type of embolic. I mean, you know, we're going to do the procedure anyway. That stuff might not necessarily require funding. Um, but if you're looking at something that is experimental or something that isn't currently covered, then, you know, you're going to have to look for a funding source. And certainly some institutions are better at others at having internal funding sources. Um, apart from that, you, you know, you got to look at, you know, societies like the SIR, RSNA, you know, those things also have societal funding that you can look for. Um, and then, you know, you can also look for, I would say, you look for sources of funding from disease specific, like, you know, foundations, you know, people that might be interested in diabetes or obesity, or people might be interested in pancreatic cancer or anything that you're kind of looking for. Then of course, there's always NIH funding and NIH funding is going to be probably the the most time consuming and um, competitive of the processes, right? So once you kind of have your idea it's probably important to, you know, sit down with somebody who's got a little bit more knowledge than you, you know, in the field and kind of say, here's what I have, you know, what do you think? Um, you know, is there something that I'm missing? Um, because one of the most important things you can do when you can think about doing like prospective research is really like, what are the questions that you're answering? And that's one thing that I've really learned, you know, over the past year, you know, year and a half when I've been, you know, more involved in this is not just like, I have this idea and it's kind of nebulous and it's, it's cool, but what are the specific questions that I'm trying to answer? What's question number one? How am I going to answer that? What's question number two? How are we going to do that? And what's question number three? How are we going to answer that? And really like, getting your thinking down to a very formulaic model to saying, these are the questions that I want to answer that we're missing. These are the ways that I'm going to do it. And this is how I'm going to measure that. That's as far as the process goes is, is really important far, as far as like hammering out the exact details of what you want to answer and how you're going to answer those questions. So, you know, that timeline takes a little bit, right? You know, however long it, yeah. takes, it takes a bit. And then of course, you know, you've got your funding deadlines and then you put a grant together and you send it out. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's the cycles for the NIH are, are only, you know, every so months. And so once you send it out, then you hear a few months back. So you're probably talking, you know, sometimes like a years long process to get from that idea to funding. And then of course you got to go through the IRB to make sure that, it, that it's all okay. So, I mean, it's worth it. And I think we should definitely should be doing it, but that's what people need to understand is that, you know, this has got to be something that you're in it for the long haul. This isn't something that you're going to come up with in, in two or three months and get funding for and just run a trial. It's, it's a lot more work. It's a yeah. lot more work than that. Yeah. And it's interesting because as, as you were saying before, the, the foundation or the history of IR is one of a lot of innovation, a lot of new devices, techniques. And because of that, a lot of the literature is from industry. And it seems like um, some of that literature 
doesn't always get replicated in an academic setting or in like, like you're saying, a perspective randomized control fashion that isn't funded by industry. Do you feel like we're getting to the point now with, like you're saying, SIR pushing for, you know, more high level um, literature that we are starting to replicate more of those industry studies? Does that, does that make sense? Well, I mean, I, you know, the, I wouldn't necessarily say that having funding from industry is bad. I mean, you know, like funding that you can get, that you can answer a question is, is always, yeah. in my mind, a good yeah. thing. You know, and you have to just, the thing is that you have to kind of make sure that when you're doing it, you know, is this something that they're running? Like, is it their trial that they're getting all the data, that they're doing all the statistics? You look at that in one way versus, you know, am I running the trial and all they're doing is funding it? I'm collecting the data. I'm doing all the data analysis, but yeah. they're providing the funding for that. Those are two different issues. Um, and so I, I, I definitely think that, you know, from a, a perception standpoint, having it so that, you know, you're controlling the data, you're doing the data analysis and that either industry is only funding it, then that from a perception standpoint is always going to, you know, is always going to look better. And that's why it's important to kind of look at data, see what the inclusion and exclusion criteria are sure. and, and kind of look at things with just, you know, always take everything with a grain of salt as you're going through. So I wouldn't necessarily say an industry sponsored, you know, study is bad. There's definitely like good data that's come out of, you know, especially like with PE lysis and with, with balloons uh, for yeah, dialysis definitely. patients yeah. and, you know, for stent grass for dialysis patients, a lot of that stuff has been industry sponsored and stuff has been randomized controlled trials. So it's not necessarily that it's bad. Um, I think that you know it, it, you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt and kind of say, hey, well, that was that with that specific device. This is what they were using it for. But um, you know, so it's not necessarily been. I wouldn't say it's necessarily moving away. I just think that it's it's different, right? Because yeah. you know, um, to get NIH funding or to do comparative effectiveness research or to do randomized controlled trials, I don't necessarily know that the funding source is the issue as much as the design and the execution of the trial, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. That gets more towards my question of part of that strength of level of evidence in IR, where, like you mentioned, PE lysis, there's some really good trials that are coming out. I guess my question is, do those need to be replicated or does there need to be further validation with more trials for things like that? Well, the answer for everything in research is there always needs to be further validation <laughs> yeah. with more trials, right? Because yeah, otherwise, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, I mean, I mean, it's that's so that so that's the short answer, but you know, I mean, if, it, it really kind of depends, right? So, for example, if you've got a, a PE lysis study, right, that you know is only essentially using the ECOS catheter from one specific company, yeah. then does that you know, does that necessarily translate to other hospitals or other centers that might only be using a different kind of catheter that isn't ultrasound assisted, right? So, exactly. those are open questions, mm-hmm. in which case you know, then another study needs to be done without ultrasound assistance. And then once that study's done, then we need to compare ultrasound assistance to not ultrasound assistance. So those are all questions that need to be answered. So, you know, there always needs to be more study, but of course, when something's sponsored or has industry, you know, they're going to, it's going to be their device. So, you know, it, 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 does it always replicate yeah. to somebody else's device? And so that's why it's always important to know because it's always a limitation, like your hospital, your experience, your practice is always going to be a limitation to how replicable it is to other institutions and other practices. Yeah. The single center versus multi. Yeah. That's a yeah. Great point. Uh, sure. Do you feel like over the next uh, 10 to 15 years that this push from the SIR will uh, lead to more higher level studies and a better understanding of long-term outcomes for patients? Yeah. I mean, I hope so. I think, um, you know, I think, I think that's one thing for interventional radiology is that, you know, sometimes for IRs, IR is the only thing that exists, right? And you can sit there and point to studies and say, oh, well, look, the, the treatment that we do is, is safe and effective. 
But in my experience and doing kind of some practice building at, at this hospital and others is that, you know, the, the relevant question is in relation to what, right? So just because my procedure is safe and effective, is it as effective as a medical option? Is it as effective as a surgical option? Is it, you know, so, so I, I do think that we kind of need to go there and we kind of need to be pushing, you know, more and more for things that aren't just showing that, you know, we're safe and effective, but that we are in safe and effective relative to whatever yeah. standard, whatever standard of care is. Um, and that's a whole separate question. And so hopefully as we start to, and you can't always get a randomized control trial. So sometimes that's meta-analysis and sometimes that's, you know, sometimes that's just a big retrospective database, but the more data that we collect and the more we say, well, you know, relative to, you know, relative to surgery that we are just as, just as effective and our complications and our costs are a lot left. And that's why I really think that, you know, complications and costs are really going to be a big area uh, of focus kind of going in the future. Because even if you can't beat a certain procedure necessarily in outcomes, but if you're close in outcomes, but you beat it in complications and costs, you know, that can still be a huge win for the patient. So, um, uh, so I think that, yeah, I, I, hopefully our, our push would be going towards that in the future. That makes sense. So I guess uh, one of the good questions to wrap up with then is how do you feel that the incoming generation of IRs can help close that gap between the IR literature and the surgical and medical literature? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, the applicants we have coming through are so good. I mean, you know, I really feel like the, the field is going to be uh, bright and stocked with, uh, you know, aggressive and passionate people going forward just be, just from the sheer, you know, number of applications and the type of applications we're getting for the integrated IR residency. So, um, I mean, things that people that are interested in potentially pursuing academics and things that I kind of wish, I guess, maybe going back, wish that I had done more. I, I really wish I would have, you know, maybe done something in residency, participated in like a, like a, uh, either like at the, you know, the RSNA and AUR and Rankin Ray all do this, I believe, you know, that there's essentially like an academic or academic radiology or academic interventional radiology kind of course for residents. Um, I think those are really good things to get involved in because I wish I would have known more about, you know, trial design and enrollment. Oh, and, yeah. and and yeah, I mean, that's just, just you know, to because then even when you're reading other papers that you can read it with a more critical eye. Yeah. Um, and then kind of knowing more about that. And then the other thing that I kind of, again, is just, oh, I wish I would have known more about is just, is just statistics, you know? Um, I mean, you take statistics in college and you feel like you know about means and medians, but knowing what kinds of tests, and certainly none of us are going to be experts in, in statistics, and that's why we have statisticians for, but you're going to be so much more functional on your own if you have a really solid understanding of statistics and how to calculate these kinds of things on your own, rather than kind of relying on somebody else who might not be clinical or understand the question that you're answering. So those are two things. I think Think that kind of going back, I wish that you know, as a as a resident, I would have been more involved in like understanding you know uh, clinical trial design and statistics. I think those things would, and there are resources out there available, but I think understanding those things would be really helpful, um, kind of going forward. If you think that you know you know publishing and research and academic medicine is something that you're interested in, yeah, definitely. I worked with Dr. Chick when he was at Michigan, and he has a master's in statistics, and I think that's like one of one of the best tools to have, you know. But obviously, not everybody can do that. But yeah, and it, it definitely makes it a little easier. Exactly, and the thing is, is that even if you're not a, even if you yourself or not want to be a world-renowned researcher, I mean, if you're an interventional radiologist who has a strong background in statistics, I mean, you're going to be on every single paper probably that comes out of that division, right? Because they're <laughs> going to be asking for your help, and yeah. you know, and so, yeah. you, and so you make yourself really useful, even even in that sense. And so, um, and and we have great statisticians, and we have a good relationship with them. But you know, to have someone that's clinical that understands it and that can do it on their 
own, I mean, it just decreases barriers for you to kind of do a lot more stuff. Great point. Definitely. And um, with like the new integrated residency where now like uh, applicants will be at the same place for five or six years, depending. Um, there's definitely more of an opportunity, I feel, to like get involved with a longer like study, long, longer term study from like the beginning of your residency to kind of like help see that through if it's available. Yeah, definitely. And I think that will be a good thing. And I think, you know, if, if it's something you're interested in doing, you probably want to have kind of two concurrent things going. You probably want to get involved in a long-term project, you know, that you can kind of see, you know, throughout for a year or two, maybe a clinical trial that, you know, your center is doing. But at the same time, like if that falls through, you don't want to be the only thing that you've invested your time in. So at the same time, you kind of need to also be doing kind of some of these, you know, shorter things and putting out some stuff so that you kind of have both things cooking at the same time, I think is probably the the, the best path to follow. Yeah, definitely. Are there any other words of advice you have for our listeners, both students and trainees who listen to this podcast? No, I mean, just to reiterate, really, you know, I think if, if, if you're interested in doing academic interventional radiology, you know, find a good mentor. And if you don't have a good mentor at your institution, you know, um, there's plenty of resources through the RFS, the early career section, through just the SIR mentor match um, to get hooked up with someone who may have similar interests to you. Or if they don't, even if they don't, they can probably find someone who does have a similar interest to you. So, you know, get, get matched up with somebody as early as you can and, and kind of see um, where they can help you and what they're interested in. And I think that would probably be the, the most important thing you can do from early on. Awesome. Right. Well, Dr. Gunn, we appreciate you coming on and we'll be sure to include a link to your Twitter handle so all of our listeners can follow your awesome cases on Twitter as well. All right. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. That's it for this episode. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming episodes this season, where we'll be discussing global IR, surviving fourth year as an IR applicant, palliative IR, and more. If you have any questions or feedbacks, we'd love to hear from you. If you're a practicing IR who would like to get involved with the podcast, please contact us at our email address, thesoundofir, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast apps. See you next time.